Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Craig Lamolt. I'm a reporter at WGBH Public Radio in Boston. Uh, and um, I'm the moderator for today's discussion, a uh, roundtable discussion on the opioid crisis. According to the CDC, 91 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. That number includes both heroin and prescription opiates. Uh, Opioid-related deaths have quadrupled since 1999. In 2015, nearly one and a half million Americans were treated for addiction uh, to prescription opioids or heroin. And this problem has become so worrisome that Congress quadrupled funding for opioid addiction in its recent agreement to, uh, to increase NIH funding. And we'll be talking in a bit about whether that's enough and what more needs to be done. Today, we're here to talk about that problem and hash out some of the things that states can do to help. And we're joined by four former US governors to hear their perspectives on this crisis. Our panelists, starting to my immediate right, are Stephen Bashir, who is governor of Kentucky from 2007 to 2015. He's also the author of an upcoming book, which is coming out this month, uh, People Over Politics, it's called. And also uh, to his right is Ted Strickland, the governor of Ohio from 2007 to 2011. And joining us remotely is Jay Nixon, who is governor of Missouri from 2009 to 2017, and Governor Linda Lingle, who is governor of Hawaii from 2002 to 2010. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Our event today is presented jointly with PRI's The World and WGBH News with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, we're streaming live on the websites of the forum and on PRI and WGBH.org. We'll be taking questions a little bit later in the conversation, so please, uh, people who are viewing online, be part of this conversation. Join us and email us your questions. You can email your questions at theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. I'm going to repeat that just so you get it. It is uh, theforum at, uh, at hsps.harvard.edu. So please email in your questions. We'll be getting to them a little bit later in the program. And uh, I want to begin to get started uh, by taking a look at a story uh, th about the, the epidemic and the personal touch of it, the personal tone of this. Um, this clip is from Frontline's film Chasing Heroin. It tells the story of a Washington mother named Carrie who was prescribed Vicodin uh, after the birth of her second son, and uh, her second child rather. And after a few years, she was prescribed 300 to 400 pills a month. She asked her doctors for help and she tried to quit, but she just couldn't do it and everything went downhill. Let's take a look at that clip. I began seeking pills in various ways. And it started with going through people's medicine cabinets, the neighbors, people from church, family members, grandparents. I even went to real estate open houses and then asked to use the bathroom to obtain pills. If and it call in refills on these medications, calling these automated lines at Walgreens, posing as the nurse from this doctor's office, please refill this, go through the drive-thru and pick it up. I'm so-and-so's daughter or friend and she's sick, I have to pick up her script. 
No questions asked. After two years of stealing other people's prescriptions, one morning she ran into trouble at Walgreens. I went to the drive up window and the pharmacist said, this isn't your script. We called the doctor. This is fraudulent. He called the police. They came to the house. You have small children here. Well, put them on the computer downstairs. Um, we're not going to arrest you if you'll go and turn yourself in. So my neighbor and friend drove me down to the police station and that became a deferred prosecution. And as a result of that, I went into inpatient treatment. Again, that's from the film Chasing Heroin, uh, produced by my colleagues at Frontline, which is produced at WGBH. Uh, and I think her story really illustrates how difficult opioid addiction can be to overcome. And I'd like to start our conversation today by asking each of the governors to, to briefly talk about a specific challenge that you faced as governor uh, when it comes to the opioid epidemic and a little bit about uh, what, what can be done about it. Governor Bashir, can, can we start with you? Yes, you know, Kentucky became ground zero, or at least one of the ground zeros in, in this whole uh, opioid crisis. And our first crisis was more the uh, prescription drug abuse. And, you know, we tackled that pretty uh, uh, aggressively mm -hmm. and, and did a lot of things to get our, our hands around that. Uh, prescription drug monitoring programs and, and uh, more, more treatment for folks. Um, running the pill mills out of the state, all of those kinds of things that you can do, and we were pretty successful with it. Unfortunately, usually the way you know you're successful is that heroin and fentanyl pop up, because when the addicts cannot get the legal drugs uh, to abuse, then they go looking for something else, and it was a marketplace then for that. Uh, so we had to tackle that, and uh, you know we did it with naloxone being put in the hands of, of uh, first responders, uh, those kinds of things. And, and I think the jury's still out on that. It's, it's, I think it's working, it's helping, but this is one of these issues that's never gonna go away. I mean, we're never gonna be able to say that we've solved it, but, but we certainly can get better control of, of these circumstances and get a lot more people on their feet. Two things that I see that continue to concern me uh, as much as everything else. One, treatment. Uh, we're, we're still not to where we're providing the kinds of treatment to as many folks as need it. Uh, it's expensive, uh, and I really think the federal government is going to have to basically kind of declare this a Manhattan project like we did in World War II to develop the atomic bomb. Uh, and put the funds in with the states and partner with the states uh, in the treatment uh, area. The other thing I think that we need to do a much better job of is uh, educating our doctors. You know, 99.9% .9 of our, our docs and our other prescribers out here are good people trying to do the right thing, but they really don't have a handle uh, as much as they should on the unintended consequences I mean, I shouldn't walk out of a place after surgery with 60 uh, pills. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, there, there's just something about that that we need to change. So the, the treatment aspect and the education aspect are two things I think we've really got to zero in on. Governor Strickland, uh, what did you see in Ohio? What was your experience there? Well, I saw a public health crisis uh, in my state uh, that developed over time. Before being governor, I was a congressman, and I served an Appalachian area. Uh, a very poor area, and I saw 
uh, pill mills develop in that area that were um, exploiting people, uh, condemning them to death. Um, and uh, there would be uh, unethical doctors that would set up shop, put a sign on their wall, all doctors visits, $75 cash, and they were selling prescriptions. And um, that, was, that was many years ago. So this problem has developed increasingly over time. You know, there are two aspects to this. There's, there's the prescription drug aspect, uh, and then there's the street drug aspect, and they are connected. And we all know that a lot of people get hooked on these medications uh, legitimately. You know, they, they have an illness, they have pain, uh, they get a legitimate prescription, and they become addicted quickly, many of them very quickly. And then the prescription is no longer there. So they find themselves, as this woman that we saw in the, in the clip did, looking for other ways to meet their addictions. And so they go to, to street drugs of various kinds. Um, my conclusion is that uh, there's no simple solution, but one of the solutions, as Governor Bashir has said, is to work with the medical community. Uh, I believe there needs to be physician education. And, um, and we need cooperation from the medical community. Um, and then the other aspect, obviously, is, is, the, is the street drug and the treatment for people who get caught up in, in these addictions. Um, it's a very serious problem. It is a public health problem, and uh, we need to address it as such, and that means a commitment on the part of our federal government, working with the individual states to make sure that there are sufficient resources for the treatment that's necessary to help people overcome these addictions. Governor Nixon, what's a particular challenge that you saw in Missouri? Well, I, I come at this, I was Attorney General of the state for 16 years before I was governor for eight years. So as this began, I was in law enforcement in essence. And our, and our approach at that time was, uh, you know, find the bad guys and, and, and lock them up. This is a problem where that is, uh, that is not the solution. It certainly didn't work to solve the problem. Now, I think some of the great things that have been said by, uh, by my cohorts here, as well as uh, Governor Lingle, uh, dealing with uh, pill mills and all of that sort of stuff is important. But I think two things that, 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 that I think are also should be focused on is making sure that we are engaging what, with what we call the palliative care community, not just the doctors, but the hospice and others, where there's proper use of these in, in controlled situations. Uh, because I think sometimes uh, uh, having them as part of your coalition, people that are appropriately uh, receiving near the end of life, especially uh, some of these powerful medications for proper use, are important in order to balance uh, the discussion and they allow you then to take away excuses for inaction, which I think that some of those background stories have, have done. The second thing is, I, and perhaps it's just me, but I, and I understand the, the path from from a prescription opioid to to uh, to street heroin and all that sort of stuff, but to me and to a lot of the constituents here in the Show Me State, those are very different things. Um, and that connection hasn't completely been made in the public's eyes. And quite frankly, for individuals, it's a lot different to take a pill that somebody gives you than to take a needle and stick it in your arm. So I think that, that getting a little more dis understanding of that, because I think that we saw that the e effectiveness of drug treatment was far less among the folks that use street drugs as it was on the folks that were caught, shall we say, earlier in the phases here 
when they were either getting prescribed or getting up. And so where to engage and how to engage to prevent it from going from the pills to the, to the, the needles is an area that requires more attention. Things like this, talking about this publicly, talking about it nationally, uh, in, in a uh, non-confrontational way are going to be important on those two avenues also. Okay. Governor Lingle, uh, it, Hawaii hasn't seen quite the, uh, the depth of the problem that some of these other states have. Can I ask you to speak about what you've seen there and, and how you've addressed it? In Hawaii, Craig, the opioid epidemic is growing, but it's not the number one drug problem in the state. Crystal methamphetamine uh, is the drug of choice in Hawaii. Uh, it's an illegal drug, so it's a, a different issue somewhat than the opioid crisis. Uh, going back to t early 2000s, we had an explosion of crystal methamphetamine use uh, here in Hawaii. And I think it's important to point out that crystal meth remains the drug of choice in 27 states. But the funding now has shifted. And this is an ongoing issue. When a problem pops up in the political scene, uh, people start to follow the money. And although you still have many, many states who are heavily impacted by crystal meth use, the money is now on to the opioid issue. So I think later on in the program, we can talk a little bit more about that. But our approach here in Hawaii was a community-wide approach. So we did uh, legislative hearings. There was $15 million appropriated for treatment uh, and, and other aspects of the problem. Um, it remains, as I said, the drug of choice. It's where crystal meth was first introduced into the United States. Uh, but we involved all aspects of the community except the medical community. We did not involve them to the extent they will have to be involved in the opiate uh, crisis. I agree with the other governors who have spoken about the medical community's key role as we go forward. And later on, we can talk about some of the specific things that they will need to do. But I think the, the holistic approach is the only way to get a handle on this problem. And I agree with Governor Bashir. We're, we're never going to eradicate drug use, whether legal or illegal, but I think we can make some good progress. Uh, just yesterday in the Hawaii legislature, uh, they passed a bill to address the opioid issue, uh, limiting the supply to seven days in a prescription, except in the case of cancer treatment and post-surgery. They also require uh, physicians to counsel uh, anyone who's given an opioid prescription. So I think that, that was a big step taken yesterday here by the Hawaii State Legislature. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, all of you. They raised a lot of issues. We clearly have quite a bit to talk about today. Uh, before we move on with the conversation, I'd like to introduce one more clip that we're going to share today. This is actually from a story that I reported for NPR. Uh, about a young man named Max Baker. And Max had uh, become an addict to opioids, um, but he managed to get clean. He managed to get into a point of recovery, um, and uh, then he wound up getting in a car accident, uh, and he needed pain medication. Uh, and here's a little of Max's story. 
there isn't any definitive guidance for doctors on how to treat a patient like Max. Max's anesthesiologists pointed to research that suggested surgery patients on relapse prevention drugs do fine with anesthesia and opioid pain relievers afterwards. But Max had stopped using the relapse prevention drug a year earlier. The anesthesiologists wind up using a normal drug cocktail for the surgery, including opioids. Max's surgery went well. But afterwards, his father says Max confronted Dr. Shanko. And said, I, I need medicine for this pain. I need real medicine. And the doctor took me aside. And I, I can tell you, he had mist in his eyes. He put his arm around me. He said, I don't know what to do, Jim. It was horrible because you're a doctor. You don't want people to be in pain. But my fear is that this kid is going to go back to his life is going to be altered because of what we're doing, in a bad way. But he feared if he didn't give Max the drugs he wanted, Max would find his own supply. I think he would have said that I will take matters in my own hand. Absolutely. In the end, Dr. Shanko prescribed just a small amount of Vicodin, an opioid. Less than a month later, Max died of a heroin overdose. He was 23 years old. There's no way of knowing what triggered the relapse. Had he come off the Suboxone treatment for his addiction too soon? Did the opioids give him a taste of the drugs he'd previously managed to kick? Or was he trying to self-medicate to ease his pain from the surgery? Dr. Shanko, the hand surgeon, has been asking himself those questions. What could you have done differently? What do you change? How do you do something differently? How do you treat patients like this? Max's father, James Baker, who you heard in that story, is a physician who is now licensed to prescribe Suboxone, the, uh, the uh, treatment drug that helped Max get off uh, opioids to begin with. Um, he's here with us today. Uh, thank you for being here, and thank you for sharing your story with us as well. I think Max's story really highlights a number of difficult issues about this epidemic. One is that there's simply not enough addiction treatment specialists to help people in the medical community deal with this kind of question. They're not used to dealing with this. They don't know how, and they need addiction specialists who can help guide them through something like this. Um, I, I think more generally, though, also, it, it points out that the, the opioid addiction presents a real challenge to the medical community in, in a lot of different ways as well. And Governor Bashir, I wanted to ask you, I know you made a change requiring doctors in Kentucky to check a patient's drug history before they prescribed uh, these kinds of opioids. Can you talk a little bit about, about what you did in that law? Well, we had a voluntary uh, prescription drug monitoring program, and about 20% of the uh, prescribers were participating. And uh, one of the things we did was make it mandatory. Uh, a lot of the doctors uh, uh, initially didn't like that. Uh, we were interfering with their practice and, and they should be able to make those decisions. And you know, I understood all of that, but when you get into one of these kinds of crises, um, I think you, you have to go a little farther than just voluntary um, uh, measures. And uh, so we made it mandatory, and the doctor shopping dropped dramatically. The number of prescriptions of, of oxycodone and all of these things dropped 24, 25 uh, percent. Now, that was connected with running the pill mills out of the state and, and other things. But the fact that a person couldn't go around the corner and come into your office and say, uh, I, you know, I've got pain, I need a prescription, and, and you punch their name and their social security number and all that in, it pops up that, oh, this guy was around the corner yesterday getting the same prescription done. Uh, it really cut down and almost stopped that kind of thing. And 
once the, the physicians got the experience of the fact that it only took 30 seconds to a minute to get all this done, they've been very accepting of it since then. Uh, and, and it really has made a big difference. And I think it's worth noting that it didn't come easy. There was resistance when you tried to do this. Oh, well, I, I had to pass it in legislation and, uh, and the Kentucky Medical Association opposed me. And, uh, and so we had a knockdown drag out fight and eventually I won. Uh, and, uh, but now they're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just that, that typical don't get into my space kind of thing. And uh, I'll tell you what, when people's lives are on the line, when you're governor of a state, you're responsible for 4, million, 4 million people and their health and their lives. And you see this kind of thing going on. Uh, you know, to me, it was time to step up and we stepped up. And as I say, eventually everybody got on board and it's, it's working. Okay. And, and Governor Nixon, I know that this is an issue that you've been trying to deal with in Missouri and you've sort of been struggling with it, right? Yeah, I mean, our legislature has not passed a prescription monitoring. We've had a number of local jurisdictions uh, that have looked at that. Basically, every other state has. Uh, we still have a challenge. I, I think when uh, Governor Lingle said you have to have a holistic approach, I'm not saying it, that, uh, so I think you have to attack this on a, on a lot of fronts. But uh, for the very reasons that Steve, is, uh, Governor Bashir mentioned, our legislature has yet to put that bill on a governor's desk. I mean, hopefully this is the year they've been working hard and made a little more progress than we have in the past. Um, but we've had to make up for that and try to make up for that on the law enforcement side, on the pill mill side, and the divert drug diversion side, which is a lot clunkier way uh, to come in after the fact and go after folks or go after doctors themselves, investigate whether there's actual medical reasons. You can do it, but it's not nearly as efficient or effective uh, as the registry uh, laid out by Governor Bashir and they're across the country. But privacy issues are real. I think from our perspective, I mean, the doctors have come around uh, and they're in a much better place on this than they were a few years ago. And it's kind of some of the folks in the legislature feel that this is a, a, some sort of a privacy issue or whatever. But I think this may be the year that we break through there. But I don't want people. One of the things I'm concerned about is if they get this bill finally passed, that folks think we've solved the problem. Uh, because we're a long way from solving the problem with just that bill. We would not be having this uh, discussion today. and We wouldn't have the challenges we face if that one necessary step was the entirety of what needed to be done. I think it's been a problem for us. And the examples that you all uh, laid out to us show why we're going to get it done, whether it's this year or next. But it shouldn't dissuade us from broad action in this area. Right, and a lot more for us to talk about uh, on some of those other points as well. I want to open this up to the other governors as well. Uh, Governor Strickland, can you speak just a little bit about, you know, you, you mentioned before about engaging the medical community and that Absolutely. being one of the real challenges here. Can you speak a little bit more about what specifically you would like to see from them? Well, I, I think there needs to be physician education when it comes to this particular problem. And I, my experience as a congressman before I became governor is I followed these pill mill doctors throughout my congressional district. I called the Ohio Medical Association and I told them what was going on. And their response to me was, Congressman, we cannot tell our physicians how to practice medicine. And I said, give me a break. There are standards of care. And uh, so I, I, I really believe there's a problem. Um, as Governor uh, Nixon has said, I think it's better. I think, I think the physician community, the medical community is becoming increasingly aware that these medications are so powerful and what they can do. And we need some some standards of care that the medical community embraces and disseminates to their members. 
um, and um, it, it, it's, it's a big problem. As I said, it's complex. There's no simple solution, but there are solutions, and one of the solutions is to have a greater engagement of the medical community. We do need the law enforcement community, and we need the entire treatment community. Um, I want to tell you briefly the tale of two nephews. I had two nephews, um, beautiful young men, wonderful young men. One of them, one of them um, died a few months ago of opioid uh, use. He had been taking Xanax for uh, a long time for anxiety. Then he went to his doctor. He hurt his back. He got. Uh, he went to his doctor three weeks in a row, got a prescription for opioids, and his sister found him uh, in his bed with his phone in his hand. That's one nephew. Another nephew I had, similar, very, very involved with a lot of street drugs, had gone to the bottom, was homeless and so on. I saw him recently. He was like a different person, and that's because he's in treatment and he's getting Suboxone. And he now has a job. He is in a positive relationship. That shows the power of, a tr of, of appropriate treatment. And so, and so we've got to make sure that we have appropriate treatment available for those who are willing to engage in that treatment. As, as Governor Nixon has said, those on street drugs probably are a little more difficult to engage in that treatment than those that are on prescription medications. But we need an array of treatments available. It's going to take money. It's going to take resources, but it is a public health crisis, and we've got to admit that it is. Governor Lingle, would you like to weigh in on the engagement of the medical community? Well, it's essential, Craig. This problem cannot be addressed without the medical community uh, being an active part of f finding the various solutions. I wanted to raise one aspect of this that has not been mentioned, and that's the federal government's involvement along with the states through the Medicaid program. As you know, Medicaid is a taxpayer-funded program for people of low income and various disabilities for medical treatment. But the opioid prescription rate is substantially higher among Medicaid patients than it is for private insurance patients. I think we need to understand why that's happening. And because of the federal government's involvement, the taxpayer funds involved at the state as well as the federal level, I think we have to play a bigger role in addressing that issue. Why are people who are themselves uh, economically challenged, why are they being prescribed these opioids at such a substantially higher rate? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Governor. Along those lines, I, I wanted to ask you specifically about the, the bill that passed yesterday in Congress, the health care bill. Uh, it's been reported it would cut $880 billion from Medicaid and uh, that some states might have to cut services for things like uh, addiction treatment. Um, so as, as, the, as a lone Republican, I think, on our panel today, can I, can I ask you, what do, what do you think of that bill that passed yesterday and, and uh, what do you expect to see? Well, as most of my colleagues probably haven't read the bill yet, Craig, so I, I can't respond to it. But I can, but I can say that treatment is essential. Uh, the fact now that the opioid epidemic is affecting people of all socioeconomic backgrounds. It's not just a poor person out on the street shooting up heroin. As you showed in your film clips, it's a housewife, 
It's a wonderful young man who had a, a great chance at a good life. It's affecting all kinds of people. And the fact that it is, I think, is finally turning people's attention to this being a public health issue rather than a criminal issue. And that's been long overdue when it comes to drug addiction, in my opinion. So drug treatment is essential, but it's not just the treatment. It's having, uh, I'll use the word navigator, someone in the public health uh, arena who helps families move their way through this problem because this is not an individual problem it's a family problem and most families have no idea on how to deal with this what kind of treatment to seek and what sort of post-treatment recovery is going to be required I'm glad you said that as well because I think that's a really important issue in this whole thing that we have to take a step back and look at the attention that this issue is getting now because it does cross those socioeconomic lines and the racial lines that we're seeing. You know, the, the crack epidemic was largely a lower income and African-American problem, but now that this issue is touching, you know, people at a higher economics level and, and predominantly also a white population that we're seeing teenagers in the suburbs dying, I think it's getting a lot more attention. Governor Bashir, can I ask your, your thoughts about that, that this is now uh, a public health crisis, when in fact, I mean, it was a public health crisis all along, but now it's getting a lot more attention. Right, and you know, it's a shame that it required uh, this to move into higher economic, uh, socioeconomic classes before it, it started getting the attention that it deserved, but that's just a fact. I mean, that's, that's what happened. But thankfully, at least, now everybody seems to be zeroed in on this. You know, there's not, there's not total agreement on, on what to do and how to do it. But if there was ever an issue, Craig, to where Republicans and Democrats ought to be able to get by this rank partisanship that is keeping us apart and polarized right now, it's this drug abuse issue. I mean, this cuts across everybody. I mean, Republicans, Democrats, independents, wealthy, poor, and and it's gonna, if left unchallenged, it's gonna destroy our society eventually because you know the, the number of people that are getting involved in this just continues to grow. So, you know, for God's sakes, everybody kind of take a deep breath and, and put the politics behind them and, and let's just sit down and make sure that we're addressing this in a smart way. I mean. You've got medication treatment that's out there that we know works with Suboxone. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, uh, seems to work in some cases, in some areas. But, um, you know, bringing people in and having outpatient treatment and they go right back into the same circumstances that they came out of, I mean, that's a challenge. And, uh, but then residential treatment is very expensive. But we, we need to get our arms around this and we need to do it as Americans and forget about Democrats and Republicans. And if we do that, I really think that we have enough tools that we can make a significant dent in this and get it under control. You know, I think there's, there's still a lot that we don't understand about addiction. There's still a lot of research that needs to be done. Um, Governor Nixon, I wanted to ask you, you know, what research you would especially like to see? Do you think that there's the, enough support for the research that needs to be done in understanding the science of addiction and of treatment? Well, I think one area where I think more research and clarity and then communication of that research is that is that is that moment when people go from from pills to 
to, to needles. Uh, I don't mean to be so graphic, other than to say that I think that the drug companies would be interested in that research also. I mean, they may be willing to fund that because they're not, they're not making appropriate pain medications to be used during surgical procedures so that people will run down an alley in a street and buy illegal heroin. Uh, that, that is not their business model. Uh, so I think we should engage them to assist in getting good scientific data, good study data, as to what is that connector that gets somebody uh, from one step to the next. Because I think at those points, the reason it's secondarily vitally important is, as I said earlier, I think the problem is easier to solve when people are doing, in essence, what they view as legal conduct. When they cross over into illegal conduct, they are making a series of choices that are much more difficult to treat and ones in which the public is going to be a lot less compliant in expending dollars for felons than they are for victims. And the sooner up that path we can figure out where that splitter line is, the better we can. So on research side, I do think that is an area that we get a public benefit from that the drug companies would be interested in, in talking about, um, that the medical community is interested in talking about. And I think through that process, we could also learn some of the markers uh, that cause folks to spiral out of control. Solving that problem, as you say, is going to take therapy, right? It's going to take uh, addiction treatment to get there. And as we know, I think we've heard time and time again that there are, there's not enough beds uh, for people to get this kind of treatment. There's not enough therapists out there to give them that treatment. People sometimes wait a long time. And we've seen in, in many cases that when people get proper treatment that, that they can overcome that addiction if it's ongoing. Can I, can I ask you for your thoughts about getting this, getting enough treatment options available to people and being able to fund that because we know it's very expensive. Well, I, I like the idea that you talked about treatment options because every human being is unique um, and not every approach is going to be uh, effective with every person. So we need a, a range of, of treatments. Some of that is medical, Suboxone and so on, but we also need the social and emotional support that's necessary to help folks who are caught up in these addictions to deal, to deal with that in a way that's going to have lasting consequences and lasting effect. And the fact is we do, you know, I said earlier, we've all said, this is a public health crisis. We need to embrace that. Once we do, then I think we can make the decisions that are necessary to see that adequate treatment becomes available. Uh, and, and, we, and we need to educate and train people um, that can provide this kind of treatment. Uh, Dr. Baker has taken it upon himself, right, to become trained in the proper use of Suboxone. And, and uh, so we need more physicians that are willing to take those steps and to make sure that they're well equipped uh, to deal with the medical conditions. But we also need the psychosocial supports that are necessary and we need psychologists and social workers. And, and uh, as Dr. Or, uh, Governor Lingo has said, take a community approach to this. But all this, again, costs. Uh, I, oh, so go ahead, please. Yeah, no, if I could, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, I agree 100% with what Ted has said, but I think also it's important to look at the other side of the coin. And that is the significant users, the illegal users, the folks that are out in the heroin trade and, and, and whatnot, folks that have made really bad choices and are continuing to do those choices. Somebody told me one time that among those folks, drug treatment has to be tougher than prison. If it's not, they'll take prison. <laughs> and I think that while that, that, while that, when you get to the very extreme end of this, 
Uh, I think that that's why what what Ted talked about as far as making sure that you don't treat every person the same. You're not catching these victims or these violators at the same moment in their life or the same moment of pain cycles. Uh, and so this is an area where where you can make significant mistakes in the treatment if you don't have highly professional intake and highly focused follow-up uh, because it, it's a lot different to deal with somebody who's had seven convictions for heroin that you're busting for, for, for selling on the street than it is somebody that broke their arm and is, t is taking too many pills because they took them from the, uh, their sister or their cousin uh, at recess because their arm was hurting at school. Those are much different folks. To, to that, you're absolutely Craig, correct. Craig. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because the, 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 um, the nephew that I have that is now clean was faced with that choice once. He was faced with going into treatment or 10 months in jail, and he chose 10 months in jail. So it, it, it is true. These addictions are so powerful, people find it difficult to say, I want to give it up. I want treatment. I, I, I want to engage in, in the help that's available to me. Over time, thankfully, he reached the point where he was willing to accept treatment. But uh, these are difficult, complex issues, and uh, and as I said, we're all very different. Governor Legal, Craig, may I go back to your question about research? I think we need a lot more research in uh, several areas. Number one, why uh, in America are these opioid pain relievers prescribed at twice the per capita rate of any other nation in the world? Uh, Canada is number two, but we're twice as much as Canada. Secondly, I'd like to know the amount of prescription drugs being given to children in this nation, what impact that is having on the result of this opioid epidemic. I've felt for a long time that children are being overprescribed significant drugs at a very young age. Third, I want to know what impact has television advertising of That's narcotic right. drugs having on our society? This used to be against the law to advertise these kind of drugs on television, and now you can't even turn on the television without seeing ads for these drugs. And then finally, again, we needed an analysis of the Medicaid population. Why are they being prescribed drugs at such a high level? So I think there's a lot of missing research that we do need to help us to understand the front end. I think treatment is critical and everyone has done a great job of addressing that. Law enforcement is an important piece. But if we could catch it before it begins, it's, it's a lot easier, of course, and less expensive to individuals and to society. You know, I may be old fashioned, but I, I come from a time when you didn't expect to necessarily be pain-free all the time. I mean, pain is part of life. And now chronic pain, pain that gets horrible, I understand. But, you know, for, for us as a society to expect that we're just going to go through life, and anytime I've got a pain now, I'm entitled to get something so that I don't have that pain anymore. Well, unfortunately, as you get older, folks, you just have aches and pains, and and we don't. I think I think there is a lot of overprescribing, just as Linda pointed out, and and we've gotten to that point in our society, where pain in and of itself, is is an object of treatment as opposed to, you know, if it's an everyday occurrence or if it is a a, a chronic situation. I think we have some questions from the audience and from viewers. 
We do. We have a lot of questions coming in, so we'll just take some from online to start with. Um, this is from Dr. Madison Johnson. She's a psychiatry resident. Have you broken the barriers to obtaining naloxone for reversal of opioid overdose? In Tennessee, most insurance plans require a prior authorization, and the copay is greater than the cost for opiate medications. Well, in Kentucky, uh, uh, part of that 2015 legislation was to make naloxone a lot more available, uh, including to first responders. And we also passed basically an immunity provision for those that administer it so that unless they're grossly negligent, you can't go back and sue them if something goes wrong. So we're trying to encourage as much use as possible. I don't think we're still at the point yet to where any individual can go in uh, on part of their family and just get it uh, prescribed and, and keep it at home. But, you know, we may be getting to that point. Well, in Ohio, uh, first responders, police officers, uh, various um, individuals with those kinds of responsibilities uh, are, are being provided with, um, with these um, treatments, and it is saving lives. There's just no doubt about it. Great, thank you. Um, let's take this one. Uh, what do the governors think of the proposal to establish supervised injection facilities staffed by medical professionals equipped with naloxone to prevent acute OD deaths? Can I put that to, to Governor Nixon? Would you like to answer that? Um, well, I, I think that uh, certainly if, if the dollars are available, that's something that, that could be done. I think there are some serious challenges to that. And I think on all of this with limited dollars, and you have to look at the most effective things that you can do in the short run to get progress move forward. And while this may be one, uh, something that eventually is, is accepted, uh, I, I think that public dollars uh, in that situation is going to be a little more of a push than in some of the uh, um, the, the other areas. So I think that is that is that that remains. Uh, uh, somewhat challenging for us out here. Not to say it's not the right policy, but I think that not only in a holistic plan, but also in a holistic priority of, of things that need to be done, uh, that's something that's important. I will say on, on the, uh, on, uh, to Governor Strickland uh, and Governor Bashir, we have passed legislation that allows individuals to keep uh, uh, this drug uh, at, at their own homes now. Uh, we don't have the information in as to whether or not it's been successful. Uh, to date, but they're in the middle of a pilot project to see if it would. That was something that I signed last year that we're trying to see if it makes a difference if you broaden out uh, the number of people that, that have capacity to it in their own homes. So I think some parents as well as others are are, are probably the best caregiver possibly have in the, in the use of that medication. Governor Bashir, the in injection sites are something that you are doing in Kentucky, right? Well, they're, they're certainly experimenting. Uh, with it, and and I must say, and I would I would agree with Jay. You know, on on the range of things politically that you can do across the country, you may be able to do a lot of these things in Massachusetts, and not as many of them in Kentucky or in Missouri, uh, uh, because uh, it's just a more conservative place. Uh, amazingly enough, we got needle exchanges approved, and uh, honestly, when I put that package together, I put needle exchanges in it, but I I figured. <laughs> that's probably going to go. You know, I probably wouldn't get it passed, but we got it passed. And it's it's uh, it's it's cutting down on HIV, hepatitis C uh, situations, and and keeping that under control. So, you know, you got a lot of these things that we can experiment with. But I would agree with Jay with limited funds. I think we need to kind of get a pyramid set up of what's the most important things to do and spend our money where it where it'll make the most difference. 
We have another question? We have a lot of questions, so we'll just do one more from online. Maybe we'll take some from the audience, and then we can come back here to online. Um, this is from Andrew Scott at the Albany County Department of Health. Opioid abuse, addiction, overdoses seem to require action from numerous fields. Do you have a specific example in your state of fostering collaboration or breaking down silos between law enforcement, behavioral health, and public health professionals? <coughs> well, I, I think that is occurring um, uh, in Ohio, uh, in some communities uh, more effectively than others. Um, collaborations between the mental health community uh, and law enforcement and first responders, certainly. And um, I'd like to see that more generally uh, occur across the state, but certainly in some of our larger cities that's taking place, I think, very effectively. Governor Lingle, is this something that you uh, did in Hawaii, particularly with the crystal meth uh, situation that you've been dealing with there? Is that one of the approaches that you took? Well, it is an approach that has been successful to a degree, Craig, but you need to sustain that over time. It can't just be a, a one-time event. Uh, but I think without that kind of collaboration, we really can't address this issue. We know for a fact, as Governor Strickland just mentioned, that the mental health issue plays into this. People with mental health issues are more susceptible to prescription opioid abuse than, than those without mental health issues. And maybe that uh, seems obvious, but it's important, as the questioner implies, that we work across lines. So law enforcement, mental health, education, I think they're all very important. It's much easier in a state the size of Hawaii, where we have more 1.3 million people in the entire state, although we're spread out over islands, it's still a lot easier with a, a smaller population than it would be in Ohio, I'm sure. And Governor the, Nixon, did you want to things, yeah. one, one of the things we did in Missouri that has really paid off huge dividends that I think could be replicated around the country is we put in our 30 community mental health centers around the state, we put a law enforcement liaison in each one of those to be the person that the cop on the beat could call and then refer folks for mental health services of a broad range of areas because cops had not been had not been thinking about that directly and we didn't really know how much play we'd get so we put 31 people in 30 community mental health centers in the first year they got 18,000 calls from police and we're now at 34,000 after about 18 months and the, to, to see and to talk to these cops about how the problems they were facing, whether it's drug addiction or some other mental challenge, were really the cause and how we had offloaded to our prison system, drug treatment, mental health treatment, everything else. You could make an argument that the majority of folks that are currently incarcerated in this country uh, should be getting mental health treatment of some sort. Uh, and that may be a conservative number. The bottom line is getting the cops on the beat, engaged instantaneously basically with a community mental health liaison so that they are thinking about what the what is and i could go through the statistics that follow 18,000 calls and how many have gotten treatment and how many this and that but the bottom line we had one fellow that had been arrested 56 times bouncing between emergency room and county jail emergency room city jail 56 times 
Once he got into this system, we were able to get him the treatment he has. He now has a job. And guess what? That cop is saving a lot of time. Doesn't have to arrest the same guy 56 times anymore over an eight-year period. So the bottom line is that getting these law enforcement folks to understand that mental health is a significant part of what their job is. And with that, we also do officer wellness training to make sure that they're getting the, the services that they need. It's a tough job. So the bottom line, that direct interaction between cops and mental health has had, had huge benefits on substance abuse and huge benefits to pick up folks into the mental health system more quickly. I think we have some questions from the audience. Does anyone here have a question they'd like to ask in the audience? Thank you so much for um, this discussion today. It's a very important discussion I, that I believe touches all communities across this nation. I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts might be about community context, because the rise of the opioid crisis is happening in communities and affecting uh, people who live amongst each other. So do you think that there's sufficient infrastructure to activate communities so that they can provide a continuum of care for people who are seeking recovery and, and deal with this on a community basis? Thank you. Craig, maybe I can uh, uh, touch on this. Most recently, I was serving as the chief operating officer for the state of Illinois, which, as you know, is a very large state made up of um, all kinds of cities and towns. And it's my experience, and I think the other governors might agree with this, that in the rural communities in particular, there is a lack of treatment. There's just no, uh, no question about that, I believe. And I think a, a focus has to be there because that's where we see some of the, the most severe levels of uh, opioid abuse is in the more rural communities. And when people ask, well, why is that? Because there really is, um, well, there, there's the economic impact, obviously, of these cities and towns losing jobs. But then when people do become addicted, the ability to get treatment is very limited. So I think some focus, perhaps from the federal government, in the the idea of the, the rural part of our nation has been overlooked. It's been a part of the political campaigns this last go around. This would be a perfect area for the federal government to give more focus to, that is, treatment in the rural communities. Would any of the other governors like to weigh in on that? Go to the next question. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I just, I think it's four to nothing vote in favor of her position. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. See there, Republicans and Democrats. There you go. Agree. Bipartisanship. This is this is a model. This is a model. We're very happy to see this. Excellent. Uh, yes, um, we have a lot of questions, and they'll all be on our site. You can go and look at them and continue to respond after the show. Let's see. Uh, Harvard Medical School and Harvard X have partnered to launch a free online course called The Opioid Crisis in America. It's at www.edx.org. The course explores, explores opioid use, misuse, and addiction, and features interviews with doctors, nurses, policy experts, police officers, pharmacists, and harm reduction experts. Do you think that educational resources like these can make a difference in curbing the crisis and in training efforts? And are you aware of other resources that could serve as models for the public and professionals alike? Governor Strickland, I think you talked quite a bit about uh, the importance of educating uh, the, the medicalist group. Yeah, you, you know, um, some of my best friends are physicians. <laughs> and uh, I, I have such great respect for the medical community. I really do. Um, and they've got a big burden. Um, and I, I do think 
that it is important for us to, and I repeat myself, to pull the medical community into this discussion because they've got to be a part of the solution. Um, and um, uh, the, the interdisciplinary nature of what needs to take place, psychologists and social workers, the community of faith uh, in many cases can be helpful. Um, and and um, to try to make sure that we are um, taking this problem as seriously as it deserves to be taken. And, and, and I repeat, that's going to take resources, and resources come from commitment. And we've, we've got to stress the importance of having the resources we need. Uh, Linda said in rural communities, I mean, you know, I'm from Appalachia, Ohio, uh, and it, it is true that the kind of treatments that are available in some of the larger metropolitan areas, uh, the trained professionals and so on, are simply non-existent in these smaller communities. And so we need to focus on that. Um, uh, uh, especially. And you know, just shining the light of day on this whole issue is extremely important. Uh, and that's what a program like the, the person that sent that question has. And, and it's a fantastic program. And we need to be multiplying that by 5,000, you know, to, to make everybody aware of this. The more information that's out here, then the less political this will be and the more commitment you can get from everybody involved uh, to, to really attack this thing at its core. Thank you. I think we can just take a few more. Um, how many of the panelists today are aware of the following consensus among physicians and scientists in the field of opioid addiction? Withdrawing from Suboxone may be physiologically more difficult than withdrawing from prescribed opioids or withdrawing from heroin. Hmm. I think every individual is different, and I think that may be very true of some individuals and not of others. There's a reason why some people become deeply addicted, others do not, when they are exposed to the same medications. And, 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 and so I think we are aware of that, um, um, but my experience, and it's limited, but my, my experience with Suboxone is that for some people it is a wonderful solution and it does enable them to get out of the grips of this addiction. Others may not respond in like, and others may need a different kind of treatment. Uh, and I emphasize the individual differences uh, th that exist within this community. Great, I'll do one more. Um, and then we, I'm sorry, do we have an audience question? Hey, my name is Jing, I'm a physician at the Brigham Women's Hospital. I just wanted to have one response to that last question. I'm not sure who submitted it, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think there's scientific agreement among the medical community that withdrawal from Suboxone or buprenorphine, which is this active ingredient, is worse than withdrawal from heroin. I've prescribed Suboxone, and I've also prescribed prescription opioids. Um, and in fact, some people actually buy Suboxone off the street on the black market to treat the symptoms of opioid, um, of heroin withdrawal. So I'm, I'm not sure that's completely true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I do think that we're running out of time. I know we want to get your final comments, but please do go on our site and you can see all of these questions that are coming in. Absolutely. And I think that the conversation will continue on this site, actually. So please go to it. 
there's so much more that we could talk about today. As we've seen, this is an issue that touches on so many different areas. You know, it's, it's uh, medical, psychological, political, legal. There's so many different ways, and we could continue talking for hours. But unfortunately, as, we, as she said, we're, we're running low on time. So what I'd like to do is to end by asking each of our panelists to clearly identify a, a and recommend or recommend a policy takeaway for this subject. What what would you uh, what is your recommendation? Um, and Governor Bashir, can we start with you? What, what what do you recommend? Well, we've talked about a lot of things, and obviously treatment and 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 all of these things are essential. The one thing I'd like to leave the audience with uh, today is what's going on right now. You know, right now under the Affordable Care Act, one of the ten essential benefits for the very first time. Uh, that every insurance company has to provide and that the Medicaid program has to provide is treatment for addiction, behavioral health coverage. Um, that was a, a monumental step forward to me in, the, in, in attacking this whole area. And I know politics is involved in this and we're going to argue about what a bill's supposed to look like and all of that, but for God's sakes, no matter what ends up happening here, I would hope that everybody would put pressure on every politician that you find out here to make sure that one way or the other that we continue to have coverage for behavioral, mental health, uh, addiction treatment because uh, if we don't, I mean, we're gonna go way backward uh, and backward real fast. At least with that kind of coverage right now, uh, people are getting paid some for the treatment that they provide and it's a step forward and we've just, we shouldn't give that up. Governor Stricken, your policy takeaway? Well, I want to say I agree with Governor Bashir totally um, when, it, when it comes to that. The other area I think we need to focus on is the research that's, that's been mentioned. Uh, there's much we don't know. Um, we need to do everything we can to invest the kind of resources into the research to help us come up with new treatments, new medications, um, ways to relieve pain, um, that uh, do not lead to these, these serious addictions. Um, it ought to be possible to, uh, to meet the legitimate medical needs of suffering individuals and do so in a way that does not threaten their lives going forward. And so that involves research and we need to invest in research. Governor Lingle, what is your one recommendation? I think looking at uh, the medical community as the first line of defense is very important. That, that would be the context of my recommendations. And as they did in Kentucky, I think requiring anyone who's prescribing these kinds of medications to mandatory that they go on to the uh, prescription database and determine whether the patient they're looking at is being prescribed these drugs by others uh, other physicians or others in the medical community is critically important. I would say that that would be my number one priority is to make that kind of uh, quick check mandatory before any of these kinds of medications are prescribed. Thank you. Governor Nixon, what's your final thought? Uh, get the cops on our side. We, we were, when we put in the law enforcement mental health liaisons, we thought we were dealing with schizophrenia, depression, 
And what we found was we're dealing with, sometimes those are caused, but, but addiction and, and, and medication and, and whatnot is a real significant mental health problem. And the cops have been unbelievably helpful to us. They understand that if you can solve these problems, they're not gonna be facing a gun on the street. They're not gonna be facing somebody in crisis. Uh, and, and so I think having the cops on our side and have them engaging in these levels for us uh, we've just learned a lot in the last 18 months, as we've heard directly from the folks on the street uh, on the law enforcement side about this, not to go arrest people, but to figure out a solution to get that avenue of folks coming at them narrowed. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And that, that does, unfortunately, wrap up our time for today. I'd like to thank our panelists, Governor Bashir, Governor Strickland, uh, Governor Lingle, and Governor Nixon so much for sharing their thoughts with us today and their recommendations with us today on this crucial issue. Uh, and I'd like to thank our audience, both here in the studio and online for joining us. I encourage all of you to, uh, to continue this conversation online at the forum website. It's uh, forumhsph.org. Please keep that conversation going in those comments. I think it's a really valuable one to have. Also, please tune into the next forum. It's, on, uh, it's called Supplements and Health, Sorting the Facts. It'll be on May 11th uh, from 1230 to 1:30, right here, again, at forumhsph.org. Again, thank you all so much. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.